Let's open our Bibles, please, to Micah chapter 7. Micah chapter 7. We've talked through the uh, minor prophets thus far. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah. And now we're in Micah, about to finish up Micah. We'll go ahead and teach Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, which, is, which are the others of the minor prophets. And we teach on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock and Wednesday evenings at 7. And we'll continue our lesson in Micah. And we're in the seventh chapter. I want to give you two divisions here. And then we'll come back verse by verse. The first six verses, you have the prophet's complaint. His complaint about himself and about how he identifies with the nation and the people of their condition. And then you have in verses uh, 7 through 20... Uh, confession and prayer and thanksgiving. There's a lot of things that pertain to Israel historically and the nations round about them. But there's some things that also reach out to the future and the time of their sins in the future and the judgment that will come upon them for their sins. Many of the needs that they have. If you look in the top of your Bible, you probably have a heading up the top It'll probably say something about the church or her confidence in God. Do you have something like that at the top, very top of your Bible? But you know, sometimes those headings at the top of your Bible, I don't know what you have in yours. Some of them are worded differently. But uh, it says, The church putteth her confidence in God in the top of mine. Then it says on the next page, The majesty of God in, in goodness to His people. But those those titles that you find are not divinely inspired. They're just put in there as a suggestion as what you'll find. But sometimes when it says the church here, uh, it's basically um, a little bit misleading or quite a bit misleading because it's really talking about Israel, God's dealings with the nation and the people. They may be typify or figure or symbolize some things that happen in the church. But to give a title like that, and say this applies to the church specifically, is carrying it a little bit too far. So we want to know, notice the, the context and the real uh, meaning of the Scripture. And we said the first six verses have the prophet's complaint. Now notice in verse 1, as we begin our verse-by-verse study, in Micah 7, verse 1, Woe is me, for I am as... I am as when they have gathered the summer fruits, as the grape gleanings of the vintage. There is no cluster to eat. My soul desired the first ripe fruit. So the prophet is complaining here, not only of himself, but the conditions of the people. Woe is me. You know, uh, Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am undone. And when he said, I am undone, he said, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. That's Isaiah chapter 6. And he says, For mine eyes have seen the king. We have the vision of the Lord in the first part of Isaiah 6. And then you get down to where Isaiah complains about his own condition and recognizes his own condition. So when the, the prophet here, Micah, recognizes his condition, he's also recognizing the condition of the people. And he's making it personal as far as himself is concerned. He says, Woe is me, for I am... Now notice the word as. I circle the word as. As when they have gathered the summer fruits. As the great gleanings of the vintage. There is no cluster to eat. My soul desired the first ripe fruit. And he's complaining of the fact that, you know, if you gather the summer fruits... When they have gathered the summer fruits, it doesn't take very long for summer fruits. We had that in the book of Amos, remember? 
summer fruits to to get bad. I mean, if you've got bananas and plums and some things that you have, apricots or whatever, peaches, you better eat them right away or the first thing you know, they won't be any good. And uh, that's what happens many times. We just uh, let the time pass away for us to really enjoy the blessings of God. And then he goes on to say, as the grape gleanings of the vintage, there is no cluster to eat. Even the gleanings, you know, the vineyards were to be left with uh, some gleanings for the poor and the widows and orphans. And uh, the fields were to be left that way. That was under God's decree in the, in the law that the farmers were to leave, leave that and the vine dressers were to leave the corn, leave places for gleanings for people. And he says, as the grape gleanings of the vintage, there is no cluster to eat. There wasn't anything left. Nothing for him. Nothing for the people. And he said, my soul desired the first ripe fruit. So he's complaining of the conditions of the people that they were left without. And they had not these blessings that they expected. No wonder the complaint is registered. And we'll find, go on and find, well, before we leave verse 1, let me just give you something else there. And I've mentioned it before in some of the other prophets, I believe in the book of Amos, when we talked about Ruth the Moabitess, she came and gleaned in the field, didn't she, of Boaz. And remember, Ruth was a, a Moabitess, and the Moabitess, Moabites and the Ammonites were of a cursed race of people, or descent. Because, if you remember the history, they were the result of uh, the incest or illegitimate offspring of Lot and his two daughters. And the Moabites and the Ammonites came from that illicit relationship. And so we find that they were cursed. And so Ruth, the Moabites, had to find grace in the eyes of Boaz. But the first thing that happened when uh, she came into the fields, well, uh, old Boaz, typical of Christ, he said, leave for her some handfuls on purpose. In other words, just not, not just the corners of the field, but you skip some other parts of the field and leave something else when you're harvesting. You used to harvest the wheat with a combine, you know, and you'd go along and naturally when you make the corner, it's going to leave a, a streak there in the corner that you can't get unless you go back and, and harvest the corners. And a lot of the farmers did and do. But then once in a while when the combine would get a little off of course, you might leave a little streak there about 20 or 30 feet long of wheat so wide. And you might consider that to be handfuls on purpose. There was some extra besides the corners of the field. And the same way with the vineyards. It was God's provision. God's provision for the poor and the widows, the orphans. And so when he said this in verse uh, 1, Woe is me, for I am as, as when they have gathered the summer fruits... As the great gleanings of the vintage, there is no cluster to eat. There was nothing left. My soul desired the first ripe fruit, regardless of how Israel desired to have uh, their satisfaction met. It was not there. We're going to see why in a little bit, because of their sins. And uh, the prophet has to confess his sin before God. And there's when we get down to verses uh, 7 on down, you'll find that there's confession and prayer and thanksgiving. And we all ought to confess and pray and then give thanks as well. But this is a complaint. And not only was it true of Israel of old and of the prophet as he felt for Israel. You know, all of the prophets identified themselves with the nation and people. But it, was, it will be true of uh, the remnant during the uh, time of 
travail in Zion that we've already spoken of in the last few chapters. It said, we quoted the scripture before, Zion travailed, she brought forth children. And then Isaiah said, who has heard such a thing? And we pointed out that only after her travail in the future, in the book of Revelation, you'll find it uh, come to pass, that the, the remnant will be saved and there will be children. There will be conversions. Now, notice verse 2. It says, The good man is perished out of the earth, and there is none upright among men. They all lie and wait for blood. The ones that were left all lie and wait for blood. They hunt every man his brother with a net. They try to catch him in a trap. A net or a trap. So, he's uh, sorrowful over the condition of the people, that the good, good people are gone, and all the wicked ones are left. Isn't that a sad state of affairs? I'm wondering if it's not coming to pass that the, the evil are multiplying among us in our nation. You know, Paul says that a wicked men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. So for these people that are predicting revival in these last days, I think they've missed the mark. Things are not getting better, they're getting worse. Now, after the Lord, the Lord comes, and during the tribulation period, there's going to be a revival, but it'll be after much tribulation and much uh, hurt and pain and suffering, that people will finally wake up and be revived. And we know that all pertains to future times. But you're not going to see those in our day. We're going to see more wars and, as Jesus said, rumors of wars. But the end is not yet. And He predicted it would get worse all the time. I don't know where you get some of these prophecies that these fellows try to promote and tell us things are getting better. You know, God told the children of Israel, told Joshua to go and possess the land. And listen to what he said. He told those two and a half tribes, he said, well, we've got our pasture land over here on this side of Jordan. We don't want to go in and fight in, in, uh, and possess the land of Canaan. Let Joshua and these other tribes do that. We want to sit here in this good pasture and we want to have our place uh, where we can sit in security and safety and peace. And we don't want to, we don't want to uh, muddy the waters any. And you know what? Josh, God's command through Joshua... Moses uh, told them if they didn't go over and fight for their brethren, that they would regret it. And he says, be sure your sin will find you out. He says, why do you sit here and let your brethren go over and do all the fighting? It might have a modern application too. Why do some sit on the sidelines and say, let the others do all the fighting and lose their men? If somebody hadn't died for you and I, we wouldn't be here today and have the freedoms that we have to worship and assemble and it's something to think about. Don't so quickly be led astray because our nation is worth fighting for. I know there's a lot of pros and cons in the high ups and all through the nation. But something to think about. Well, where was I? It says that they hunt every man his brother with a net. There is none upright among men. They all lie in wait for blood. Look at that in verse 2. I've read it from the bottom up, but you get every point there. Now look at verse 3. That they may do evil with both hands earnestly. They are fully set to do evil. The prince asketh and the judge asketh for reward. They want bribes. They want to be paid off. There are more payoffs in some of our governments that are corrupt because politics enters the picture instead of faithfulness on the part of those in authority. The prince and the judge ask for reward. And the great man... He uttereth his mischievous desire. So they wrap it up. They call it close. It's said and done. You know, they say, they say of a case, it's all wrapped up. It's finished. Look at verse 4. The best of them is as a briar. 
Not the worst, but look, the best of them is as a briar. The most upright is sharper than a thorn hedge. We're talking about the best and the most upright. They're the ones that cause the trouble. The day of thy watchman and thy visitation cometh. Now shall be their perplexity. It shows that the corruption that had entered the people in the nation. We might find a lot of things comparable to this day and hour in which we live, though we find and read these words in the Old Testament. Look in verse 5. Trust ye not in a friend, put ye not confidence in a guide. That's what uh, some have done today, and especially those that have forsaken and not been faithful. Those so-called friends, fair-weather friends, good friends are hard to find. When you find a friend that's good and that's faithful, and the Bible says we have a friend that's sticker closer than a brother, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. We sing that song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. The Bible says that if a man is to have friends, he must show himself friendly. And so we want the right kind of friends. And when we have the love for our brethren, we'll have the right kind of friends and faithful ones at that. But it says in verse 5, Keep the doors of thy mouth from her that lieth in thy bosom. The condition would be so bad. And it's not only a prophecy of it's not only a truth of the past, but it's a prophecy of things that will be in the future, especially during the tribulation period, that they can't even trust their own mate. Keep the doors of thy mouth from her that lieth in thy bosom. I mean, I'd hate to think that the conditions were so bad that I couldn't tell my wife about everything. Because we share everything. And we should have husbands and wives nowadays that can share everything. And pray about these situations that come up, whatever they may be. And when someone calls me and says... Brother Joyce, don't tell anyone about it. I'll say no one but my wife, Louise. That's what I tell them. Because we share it together and we both bear the burden of that person's problem. And that's the way it should be. Doesn't it say they twain shall be what? One flesh. They shall be one. And so, if you tell me, you tell her. And both of us pray about it. I will admit that there has been some things that have been told me that I have not spoken of at all because it was of such a nature and character that I... that. Uh, the person that had me in confidence, I didn't even feel right to, to speak it at all to anyone. But you see the condition. Keep the doors of thy mouth from her that lieth in thy bosom. You know, it's hard to understand how that we're to keep the doors of our mouth. Look in the book of Psalms. Look in Psalm 141, verse 3. It says, Set a watch, O Lord, before my mouth. Keep the door of my lips. See that verse? Psalm 141, verse 3. Set a watch, a guard, O Lord, before my mouth. Keep, the guard is to keep, watch over us. Keep the door of my lips. So sometimes we need to uh, take care of not telling everything to everybody. Unless we're supposed to. We're to speak when we're to speak, but we're also to be quiet when we're to be quiet. And so there's things that uh, we have to consider. Dispensationally, we'll find this next verse. You have turn back to Michael. When I say the next verse, I'm talking about the context, please, because I fail to say. Turn back to the book of Micah. The next verse is verse six. Micah seven, verse six. Hold your place there in Micah chapter seven. It says, "For the son dishonoreth the father; the daughter rises up against her mother; the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies." Are the men of his own house. Jesus cited this in Matthew 10, verse 36. But dispensationally, it applies to the future remnant. And that's even yet in the future. 
A man's enemies need not be men of his own house. But Jesus told of conditions where that is possible. It's awful for families to be thus divided. But when you take your stand for the Lord, sometimes uh, you have situations to where because of your faith in, in the Lord and your stand for the doctrines of grace and of faith, that there may be some in your family that won't agree with you. It's been known to happen many, many times, especially if some are drawn into cults here and there, and you believe in what the Bible teaches, and it's hard for you to separate those two things. But especially, it's twice as hard or multiplied times as hard when it's in your own family. If it's just friends and people around you, you can take your stand pretty well. But when it comes down to a division in the family, and by the way, that's what Jesus was talking about when he said about division. Look in Matthew 10, verse 36. See what it says right before there, quickly. Matthew 10. Verse 36, but what does verse 35 say? For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's foe shall be they of his own household. And why is he saying that? Because up here, in verse 31, 32 and 33, he says, Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny uh, before my Father, uh, which is in heaven. And then he says, Think not that I am come to seek send peace on the earth. I, I came not to send peace, but a sword. And then he says about a man being variance in his own house. Why? Because of their faith in Christ. Those who fail to confess their faith in Christ, those that deny Him. And that's what causes the division. A lack of acceptance of Christ. And it can be so bitter sometimes that it especially when it uh, comes down to the fact that you have some of your family that would go off into some cult and be led astray, then you have certainly a division in the house that Jesus is speaking of. We know that kind of division will, will exist in the future too. Back to Micah chapter 7. Micah chapter 7. And he says, Therefore, considering all this situation... Therefore, I will look unto the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. He says, I'm going to look to God. I'm going to pray. In spite of this condition that's been described that we just talked about. He says, therefore, because of it. Not only in spite of it, but because of it. Therefore, I will look unto the Lord. And he says, I will wait for the God of my salvation. And he says, my God will hear me. He's going to pray about this situation. He's going to confess iniquity on down. We'll find that as we progress along in, in uh, the lesson. Look at verse 8. Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. When I fall, I shall ri- arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light unto me. In Psalm 27, verse 1, listen to this verse. Psalm 27, verse 1, it says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? He's our light, our salvation, our strength. You read on down, He's our protection, He's our courage in this uh, 27th Psalm. So what does He say in Micah 7, verse 7, I mean verse 8? It says, When I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light unto me. God should be a light unto us in, in the midst of all darkness. We know there's darkness in the world. Not only day and night, but there's a night time in the world. Paul speaks of it in the book of Romans. He says, The night is far spent, the night of this world. The day is at hand. And he says, Now is our salvation, your salvation, nearer than when you believe. The time of Christ's coming 
is nearer than when you believe. That's your final and complete salvation. We are already saved. We preach this morning, saved from the penalty of sin by Christ's sacrificial death. We know that we're already saved. Second Timothy, I believe it's 1 verse 9. You can check it out. Uh, I believe that Paul told Timothy, he said, Who hath saved us and called us with a holy calling. Not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace. And so, He says, hath saved us. That means it's already done. So, we're already saved and we're being saved and we shall yet be saved. Three tenses of salvation, past, present, and future. I preached this morning on three deliverances. He hath delivered us from so great a death and doth deliver in whom we trust that He shall yet deliver us. So, when He's talking about this, notice... When I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light unto me. Now then, notice the confession in verse 9. You have Micah 7, verse 9. I hope I'm not leading you too fast. I'm trying, I want to cover this chapter if I can finish it. I will bear the indignation of the Lord. Well, not only would He bear it, but all those that were in, uh, under God's uh, wrath and judgment. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against Him. Why do we have to bear indignation? Because of sin. Because I have sinned against Him. Now, Micah personally uh, speaks these words, but he's speaking them not only for himself. He says, we have sinned. I have sinned. Back in the book of Nehemiah, he confesses his sin. And he says, I and thy people have sinned. Isaiah does the same thing. He says, woe is me for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Daniel does the same thing. And all of these great men of God of the Old Testament didn't just say they have sinned, but he says we have sinned. I have sinned. And we have sinned. And so that's the way the prophet here is leading us. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against Him until He plead my cause. God is the one that pleads our cause. Look. And execute judgment for me. He's here's willing chastisement. He confesses a willingness to be chastened of the Lord. Submission to God. Acknowledging His sins and their sins. Until He plead my cause and execute judgment for me. Remember David in Psalm 51 it says, Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. And then he says, That thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and clear when thou judgest. That's what he's talking about here. Plead my cause and execute judgment for me. He knew that God was just in His judgment. He will bring me forth to the light, and I shall behold His righteousness. Things will be turned around when we confess sin. Prayer and confession is what we're talking about. Verse 10. Circle the word then. Verse 10. Then she that is mine enemy shall see it. The enemies round about would see it. And shame shall cover her which said unto me, Where is the Lord thy God? That questioned God. Shame, what? Will be to those that question God. Mine eye shall behold her. Now shall she be trodden down as the mire in the streets. It says, In the day that thy walls are to be built, in that day shall the decree be far removed. This is typical, prophetically, of a future time that the decree of the Old Testament or the law will be put in the the secondary and God's new covenant will be established. Look in Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Jeremiah 31, verse 31. This is a good verse of Scripture. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. See that? So that decree of old will be put 
aside. Not according, verse 32 says, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That's the law, which my covenant they break, although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law in their inward parts and write Write it in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be uh, my people. He tells us in the New Testament concerning this, that their sins and iniquities I will remember no more. He said, I'm going to make a new covenant with Judah and with Israel and with Judah. And you and I as Christians, after Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, and this day and age of grace, we're under a new covenant. We're not under the law, but under grace. Romans chapter 6. And the Bible tells us, for what the law could not do, listen carefully, for what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh. Listen to it. Romans chapter 8. God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, an offering for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. Listen. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And it tells us there in Romans chapter 8, and I believe it's beginning with verse 2 and 3. It says, for what the law could not do, that old covenant could not save us in that it was weak through the flesh. doesn't mean that the law was weak, but the flesh was weak. And we couldn't keep up to its righteous standard. And therefore, God sent His Son. And He uh, fulfilled the law. And He became a curse for us. Galatians 3, verse 13. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law. Look at it. What is written? Cursed is everyone that hangeth on the tree. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law by His death on the cross. Galatians 3.13. Let's get back to this now. It says in verse 11, then In that day, in the day that thy walls are to be built. It's still talking about a future time, typical prophetically of what we've already discussed, a new law, a new decree. Uh, thy walls are to be built. In that day shall the decree be far removed. The old law, and there's a new covenant and a new law. In that day also... He shall come even to thee from Assyria. Uh, the Old Testament had an Assyria of that day. But this is the Assyria of the end of time, of which it's a picture. And from fortified cities and from the fortresses, even to the river, and from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. In other words, the whole country and then nations will gather to the restored Israel. From what? Sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. And they will gather to restore Israel in a future time. This is talking about the Assyrian of the end time. Look in Isaiah 60, verse 3 through 10, quickly. Isaiah chapter 60, and verses 3. It says, And the Gentiles shall come to thy light. We'll just read a couple of verses, about three verses. And the Gentiles shall come to thy light, and kings to, thy, to, thy, to the brightness of thy rising, the rising of the nation. And it says, Lift up thine eyes round about and see, and all they, all they gather themselves together, they come to thee. Thy son shall come from far, and thy daughters shall be nursed at thy side. Another scripture says, Bring thy sons and daughters from the far, from the ends of the earth. Then, look at verse 5. Then thou shalt see and flow together, and thine heart shall fear and be enlarged, because the abundance of the sea shall be converted, uh, converted unto thee. The forces of the Gentiles shall come unto thee. And it goes on and on about the conversion. Back in Micah 7, quickly. Notwithstanding, in verse 13, in spite of what we've just talked about, notwithstanding, the land shall be desolate because of them that dwell therein for the fruit of their doings. There's going to be a long time 
in the meanwhile, before this time that we just talked about comes to pass, there's going to be a long time that the land will be desolate because of the fruit of their evil doings. It was in the days of old, and it certainly will be in the future. Till the day comes when the wilderness will be fruitful, a fruitful field. Look in Isaiah 32, verse 16. Isaiah 32, verse 16. And we'll get you something else. 32, and verse 16. Notice what it says here. It says, Then judgment shall dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness remain in the fruitful field. Isaiah 32, 16. Now look at Isaiah 35, I believe it is. Uh, verse 1. 35, 1. Look at this. The wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It's going to be a time of fruitfulness. In spite of all it's of the desolation now, back in Micah 7, verse 13, notwithstanding the land shall be desolate because of them that dwell therein, because of the fruit of their doings. So there will be a time that after this desolation, verse 13, Micah seven thirteen, that there will be prosperity and fruitfulness in the land. Look at verse 14. Feed thy people with thy rod, the flock of thine inheritance, which dwell solitarily in the wood, in the midst of Carmel. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. This is the prayer of the prophet. Feed thy people with thy rod. That means, you know the word feed means to rule. They were in the, let them feed, look down verse 14. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead. These were lust pastures. And pasture lands, as they did in the days of old. They did have these places of being fed in the pasture lands. You know, when it says, feed thy people, it means rule. If you have a marginal reference, it says rule. It's not only feed, but rule or guide or direct. The same thing is taken in the New Testament concerning the elders. They're to lead God's people. Uh, let me give you four references. And I'll get, if I don't get time to get to all of them, Acts 20, verse 28. 1 Timothy 5, verse 17. Hebrews 13, verse 17. 1 Peter 5, verse 1 through 3. I'll repeat it. Acts 20, verse 28. 1 Timothy 5, 17. Hebrews 13, 17. 1 Peter 5, 1 through 3. Now, Acts 20, verse 28. Let me give you this quickly. In Acts 20, verse 28. I'll try to give you as much of it as I can. It says, Take heed. This is to the church of Ephesus. And Paul is charging... The church, the Ephesian elders, he says, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which is purchased with his own blood. Now the word feed means to rule, to guide, to lead, and certainly to feed them upon the word. But it does mean to rule. It does mean to guide. It does mean to lead. Let me give you the next one. First uh, Timothy five verse seventeen. Look at that one. First Timothy five verse seventeen. It says this: Let the elders that rule well. Notice the word "rule" is used here. It, feed was used in Acts twenty twenty eight. Rule is used here. Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in word and doctrine. I won't go into the last part of that because that would mean double pay. That's really what it means. You look it up and check it out. But on the other hand. Let's dwell on the first part. Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor. Rule means to guide or, and lead the people. And then you turn to Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13 and verse 17. 
It says, obey them that have the rule over you. Or the guide. The word means guide. Or leadership. Uh, Acts 13, 17. Obey them that have the rule over you. And submit yourselves. For they watch for your souls. And if a preacher is not watching for your soul, he's not worth his salt. Every person, every a pastor that stands behind the pulpit or has pastors of church should be watching for the care and the spiritual needs of those before him and those in the local church, let alone reaching out to others. Obey them that have the rule over you. And it's the, the word marginal reference. The Hebrew word says guide. I mean, the Greek says the guide. For they watch and submit yourselves. Uh, for they watch for your souls as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. And the only way we can give a true account is to not shun, as Paul, the context in Acts 20 says, I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. So a preacher is responsible to declare the whole word of God as if he's got to give an account for everything that's said, and his word should be what God says, thus saith the Lord. And if it's not that... It's his own opinion. Now, I want to give you one in First Peter chapter 5, if you will, quickly. First Peter chapter 5. Uh, Peter's instructing the elders. He says, The elders which are among you, verse 1, The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God. Now, that, that word means the same thing. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight. There's your overseeing. Feeding them upon the word, a ruling, guiding, taking the oversight, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, not just for the money, but of a ready mind. Neither as being lords over God's heritage. That means not to be a dictator, but being in samples to the flock. Don't say do this and do that as the Pharisees did, and they do not and would not lift up their hands to do anything. Jesus spoke out against that. But he says, being in samples to the flock. And if I ask you to do anything that I wouldn't do, I'm out of line as a pastor. And I will do anything that I ask you to do. And most of you know that. And the thing about it is, the, the context we're reading in 1 Peter chapter 5 says, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. And then here's the reward. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, Christ is the chief Shepherd, you shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Now then, I think we've had enough about that. Drop back to uh, Micah chapter 7, and we'll try to continue with this, and I'd like to finish it. Okay, verse 14. Feed thy people with thy rod, the flock of thine inheritance, or thine heritage, I should say, which dwell solitarily in the wood, in the midst of Carmel. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead, that was the lust pastures, as in the days of old. Now it says... According to the days of thy coming out of the land of Egypt will I show unto him marvelous things. Remember God's blessings and marvels that he did in bringing them and delivering them from Egypt? He said, I'm going to show that again. Verse 16. The nation shall see and be confounded. You know, Pharaoh was confounded when this happened, wasn't he? But it says the nation shall see and be confounded at all their might. They shall lay their hand upon their mouth. They'd say... In other words, they'd be afraid to speak what God has done. You ever seen people lay their hand upon their mouth? They just are in awe at what has taken place. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent. In other words, they'll find their judgment. They shall move out of their holes like worms of the, of the earth. Wouldn't it be awful to have to live like some people have 
uh, thought that we might have to live when wars and, and biological weapons and are loosed and when atomic agencies uh, fly down our way. Remember the years when you had to build the bomb shelters or you were supposed to to hide from the atomic uh, uh, outcome? Well, thank God we didn't build the bomb shelters. I just about as soon, if I was in that shelter and had my food and water and everything stored up, and when I come out the door and no one was left on the earth for me to talk to, I'd just about as soon stay here and go up with them. But I mean, we've got all kinds of fears. Now, if God could lead the children of Israel through Egypt, out of the land of bondage after 400 years and lead them in the wilderness for 40 years and take care of them, the shoes on their feet didn't wear out, they were given manna from on high and they, God opened the, the flinty rock and gave them water to drink, I'm sure He can take care of us whatever comes upon this earth. And if it's our time to go, we'll just go. So don't worry about some of these things that we're worried about. Do what is in our power to do and leave the rest up to the, the Lord. And that's, that's where we need to stand and do a lot of praying about the whole situation. Okay, look. It says, uh, They shall lick the dust like a serpent. They shall move out of their holes like worms of the earth. They shall be afraid of the Lord our God and shall fear because of thee. Now look at verse 18 through 20 and we'll close. Here's the great praise and adoration. And this is one of the greatest praises. In fact, many use 